Hi, welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is the novelist John Burnham Schwartz. I was lucky enough to meet him because my great friend Nancy Baker Cahill, who is an upcoming guest, uh, Nancy is not only a great friend but one of the best connected people I know, meaning she just knows the best people. And I have her to thank for my introduction to Danzi Senna, who was earlier on this podcast, and not only her, but also Barbara Besto, the architect we heard from last week, and now from John Burnham Schwartz. So Nancy is the unacknowledged producer of this season's show. She was kind enough to lend us her dining room while John was in LA for a few days. And he and I sat and talked about the novels that have shaped him. It was really interesting. He's incredibly well-read and thoughtful, beautiful writer. Um, His first novel, Bicycle Days, was a sort of semi-autobiographical novel about the time he spent studying in Japan as a young man straight out of Harvard. And it's a glorious very gentle, thoughtful, but insightful book about being a young man in a completely alien culture and sort of finding oneself in this strange space and figuring out who you are while you're away. I found it very moving, that book. And he's written other novels too. He wrote a book called Reservation Road and co-wrote The Wizard of Lies, the HBO movie about uh, the disgraced financier Bernie Madoff. He's contributed articles to The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Review, Boston Globe, and Vogue. And he is also the literary director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference. So it seems there's not a writer he doesn't know. And he's also been very generous in introducing me to future guests for the podcast. Here's the interview with John. John, thank you so much for agreeing to do it. It's oh, so glad. lovely of you. I really appreciate it. Anytime we talk about books. You do. Are you? Have you always been a reader? Were you a reader since you were a little kid? I have been, yeah. I mean, I grew up, we had a lot of writers around. So my father was a lawyer for, I mean, he's been out in Los Angeles for 35 years and moved more into film and TV. Mm. But back then it was writers, painters, actors, playwrights. Wow, what a so, household. Truman Capote was in our house all the time, Arthur Miller, really? all the time. Because he uh, was their lawyer? Yes, and the Millers would spend weeks with us. I grew up with Rebecca, you know, Arthur's daughter. Wow, right, yeah. Um, my father represented, David Halberstam was my godfather. Wow. Uh, Peter Schaffer was my other godfather. <laughs> oh my goodness. He was in the hospital when I was born. Oh my goodness. And on and on. I mean, my father represented Solzhenitsyn for a while, okay. Tennessee Williams oh, wow. for a little while, and then gradually got more away from the arts. There were some great painters, too. And, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Avedon was a photographer. And so that was the culture um, we were sort of growing up in. Was your mum a, a She ended up, you know, she loved literature, and she ended up in her second half of her life marrying W.S. Merwin, the poet. Oh, my who's goodness. my stepfather. And oh, right. um, so my mum passed away last spring. But William so. is still, he's 90 and a half. Wow. Not writing anymore, okay. but really... Truly remarkable uh, man, but also uh-huh. a remarkable poet. Wow. So he, I met him when I was 15. Oh, right. And so there were all these different things. At the same time, uh, I was coming out of college, I was going to be a banker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I read Bicycle yeah. Days, which right. I absolutely oh, loved. Thank you. Just loved. I'm it's probably fresher in your mind than it is Probably. Yeah. Probably is. I, I was just so struck that that could be written. It's, I mean, I read about it and read it was published on your 24th birthday. It was. I remember uh, walking down 7th Avenue with two of my friends late the night before. In mm-hmm. other words, just as the papers, mm-hmm. boy, this really dates all of us. The papers <laughs> were actually get delivered. Actually being delivered. Right, actually yeah. delivered to the newsstand. Uh-huh. And we'd been out drinking. And so I, I bought it and there was re- my first review from the Times. And, you know, it was wow. a really nice review. Yeah, it so, was a lovely review. I read yeah, it. Yeah. So, um, it's, an, it's a beautiful book. It's an absolutely you. beautiful book. It's so, the prose is so lucid and so, uh, what's the word? I think steady, just... I was just so astonished that a 24-year-old, well, you were a 23-year-old. Yeah, 21 when, when I started. When you wrote it. Yeah. And, and it's the, just to fill in readers, it's the story of, of a, a young man who's just left college and goes to Japan to be ostensibly a banker, right? And, yes, and, I mean, all very thinly disguised, but I mean, I made him from <laughs> Yale instead of from Harvard and that right. sort of thing. Yes, he goes off and with a kind of, 
I, personal fantasy, I think, of becoming another person in another mm. place. Mm. The idea, you know, that you can remake yourself in some fashion, which of course suggests that the person he really is is not someone he either knows or particularly cares for. Right, and and also that sort of heartbreaking <laughs> maxim, which is a fridge magnet, virtually. But wherever you go, there you are. So fridge magnet magnets are very uh, they're fridge they're, magnets they're for a something. reason. Yes, yeah. right. Um, it's also Bakuru Banzai in the eighth. In the eighth dimension, that movie would be no, the it's, it's a cult movie. Okay. <laughs> and it's wherever you go, there you are. It's right. like the mantra. For, right, yeah. okay. Um, but I was, yeah, I was I was struck by um, the maturity, but also by the loneliness of it. I found it a very, I found it a very lonely book. There seems something very isolated about this boy. And even when his brother comes, the, the, the sort of disconnect there. Mm-hmm. I, it took me back to my early 20s mm-hmm. and that feeling of being, utterly lost I left Oxford at 21 and knew I wanted to act and had an agent which was great and was already a step above you know many but being so bewildered by uh, by the lack of structure that was going to help me forward that I'd been through these rigorous as had you sort of academic hierarchies that had prepared me for the next stage at every level and then you're erupted out of university and and nobody and nothing prepares yeah. you for the free you have no, you have, actually have no sense becomes <laughs> nothing nothing at all and nothing nothing and, and maybe this is not this is particularly true of acting and maybe more true of banking and, and places that have more of a hierarchy but nothing prepared me for the fact that the maximum of how if you work hard you'll get results mm-hmm no longer applies in the real world. It has been true for the whole of school. If I worked hard and put the hours in, I could get the grades. I could get, you know, the A's or get into Oxford or do whatever it was. But suddenly I could be delivering the best auditions in the world and still not land the job. I just wasn't right for the part. And that was and continues to be age 43 baffling to me. I, I, I actually, I actually think that. that's about acting. I think that is, I, that's a kind of brutal back and forth that I find more brutal in some ways than mm-hmm. writing. Each form mm-hmm. has its own yeah. you know, traumas. But, I mean, I've been on the other side of the casting thing right. a couple of times, mm-hmm. and someone walks in and you're like, thank you, because somehow immediately you had something else in mind. Yes. And I, I, I think that it goes against, I mean, especially when you get into something at an age where you feel somehow that your own freedom is yoked mm. to doing this mm-hmm. thing and your own fulfillment and at the same time an identity your identity and at the same time you understand that it is it's it's something without a solid ground mm. and it's never going to have a solid ground mm-hmm. and it's very hard to accept my mm-hmm. father is turning 85 on tuesday mm. he's been a lawyer his whole life mm-hmm. he can't retire i mean i've I, he, wow. he and he said to me the other month he lives out here and he said you know my whole identity is take is bound sure. up in this thing and, but this thing is something that exists. It has an office. Right. It has a set of rules and mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a particular set of, of hurdles that you have to you know, attend to right. and get over. The other ones don't. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what I do, what you do, is something that the hurdles oftentimes never existed except in your own mind. Right. And then there are other hurdles that you never conceived of mm-hmm. because you saw something a certain way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had, so I'm, I'm about to hand in my sixth novel. Congratulations. Which, uh, thank you. We'll see. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm no, let's take it very just close. A, thank you. Finishing yes, it alone, yes. that's an achievement. Very close. Um, What's it called? It's called An Elegy for Exile. Uh-huh. And it's inspired by the life of Stalin's daughter. Oh, wow. And um, Where was she exiled? She defected to America in 1967. Really? It was the biggest defection of the Cold War. Uh-huh. I, I Nureyev was close. Right. And... She had been Stalin's beloved child mm-hmm. and daughter when he was young. Her mother killed herself mm-hmm. when she was six. But she left two children, older children in Russia, defected somewhat spontaneously, mm. came to America, and then lived a life that, as the Times obituary said when she died in 2011, reads like a Russian novel. Wow. And it is. It's absolutely a crazy life that involves defecting back years later to the Soviet Union with a 13-year-old American child mm-hmm. in tow, then defecting back to England wow. and ended up dying in obscurity in an assisted living place 
near mm. Spring Green, Wisconsin, near Taliesin, which mm-hmm. is Frank Lloyd Wright's sure. place, where she had lived, uh, and that's where her child was born. She had married into that really? crazy family. She married into the Lloyd Wrights, right? Yes. So all sorts of things. And never is it a biography or is it a novel? It's a novel, absolutely. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I read the, there's a pretty pretty good biography of her post a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I was looking forward to reading it and I grabbed whatever I wanted mm-hmm. out of it. But I, and it was well done. But I felt having read all, so many of Svetlana's letters and all of her things she'd written, my father had a lifetime of letters from her because he, mm-hmm. in fact, was the young lawyer at 34 who went over and brought her over when she defected. He went over under, wow. under CIA cover wow. in the middle of the night under an assumed name, met her. They had fake passports, brought her back on the plane. And when they arrived, the news had gotten out during the flight. And there were more reporters than there were for the Beatles four wow. years before. What a great story. So I knew her when I was tiny. She was in our house oh on and goodness. off. And... Um, so anyway, I hadn't thought of her till she died, mm-hmm. and I read about her, and then I just started thinking. But all to say, um, how did I get to that? Because uh, we were talking about structure and not having it, and work, and finishing things. And yes. Oh, oh yes. So that's my sixth, that'll be my sixth published novel, mm-hmm. but there were two others, of course, that, I mean, everybody has some version of this, but mm-hmm. I, I spent more than two years on each of them. One in my 20s after my first novel, and then another one in my mid-30s where everything, of course, the stakes just keep getting higher. Sure. You're married by then, thinking it, of having children. and So two novels that never made it. Never made it, never finished, never properly finished them, never got any money for them, never got anything, just writing, 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 you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of pages. And Is then, the DNA of any of those buried in the DNA of future ones? I mean, I, I believe... Intrinsically, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, I know with the, the second one that I put aside, it was right before I wrote The Commoner, mm-hmm. which was my uh, fourth novel. And the book I'd been working on was set in the 70s, involved black characters and white characters, New York City, mm-hmm. urban. Uh, once again, I, most of the things that are closer to my own life like that sure. end up falling by the wayside. Uh-huh. I'm just not that interested, really. Uh-huh. But... Uh, I ended up moving directly from that into the story uh, told in the first person by a fictional Japanese empress over the course of 70 years. Of right. Life. I can't wait to read that. And I've been, so, I, when I read about it, it yeah. just sounded so glorious. It, it was a wonderful project to work on. And I was a Japanese studies major in college. Mm-hmm. So moving that quickly from one completely different world and voice to another seems almost reckless mm-hmm. and then meanwhile during the time I'm three years I'm writing The Commoner sitting in the corner like a piece of kryptonite of my study <laughs> every day is this enormous you know half foot of paper right. that I never look at right and after I finished The Commoner I went back and I reread that that manuscript mm-hmm. and by then you know I, I could see it so much more clearly right I could see that about a third of it was you know, not good enough, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, not up to my standards in any way. Sure. Third of it was okay, which is also not good enough. <laughs> and a third of it was actually, you know, quite good. Right. And I could see what I felt it needed, mm-hmm. but I wasn't that person anymore. Right. Oh, interesting. I, I didn't, I had outgrown it. Right. My interest. And so, you know, I think as you... That's wonderful. That sounds wonderful. It is. It's I mean, I, I never regretted it because it got me to the book I needed to write. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the DNA is... Well, it's a, it's a form of transition or an inheritance of mm-hmm. some kind because you needed to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. look, love is not that dissimilar in certain ways right. in terms of you don't regret the things that got you to where, no, where you are. No, you don't. It's true. There's not, I get there's some parallel with acting, I suppose. I, I think, you know, I audition or read or read scripts or go for meetings with people. And first of all, there's a, there's a really basic truth, which is you just never know even the jobs that you don't get whether you've left a lasting impression that means someone Mm -hmm. hires you. That's happened to me. I can think of at least five times that I have gone on years later to book a gig with someone who remembered me from a previous thing or who'd almost cast me, which I didn't know about at Mm -hmm. the time. So there's, there's a sort of practical element, but there is also something in me that goes, 
you know, acting is one of the few disciplines that you can't really do on your own. It, it requires an audience. Mm -hmm. a, a musician gets to practice alone. A, a ballerina can work on her steps. A writer can sit in a, a room. A writer can sit yeah. in a room. As an actor, you you need to be seen. Mm -hmm. You need you have to be heard, and that's heartbreaking unless you choose to see every audition as I try to or mm -hmm. tape or you know meeting and things as the opportunity to literally to practice my steps. Yeah, yeah. and, and to be and, seen and, and, yeah, and do and it. To do it live, yeah. as they say. So, exactly, yeah. and see it rather than uh, mm -hmm. one of my tactics is to go into every audition as though it were a rehearsal mm -hmm. rather than an audition. So I will go in and try things out, and that's and that you happen to be watching me is great because mm -hmm. it gives me the stage to do it, but um, it's not me showing off. It's not me trying to win anything from you. It's me showing you or, or rather practicing what I do with an audience. And that so seems you, to me... Have you ever had a case where you've done a show or, or a film and even if the director, they all seemed happy with it, you felt that you had just never gotten it? Oh. And so, but it's sitting there now. It's out there because mm. you, they took it from you. Mm. And what do you do with that? I don't watch my work. Yes, well, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I'm in general agreement with you about oh, the, yes, the relationship one has. I don't really. Yeah. I really don't. And 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 then I have to every now and then for sort of quality control mm -hmm. purposes. Yes. And then I, yeah. but then I try and leave enough time. I, if I watch something very soon after I've done it, I usually am in a ball of cringing mm -hmm. shame. I can't handle it at mm -hmm. all. I barely listen to this podcast because I find it sort of unbearable. And yet I so love doing them that. I have to let my producer take them away and edit mm -hmm. them. And then once they've been edited and I've done all 12, season one we did 12, and I'm hoping for 12 again this year, then I'll go and listen to them at a batch and I just push through and, and you know. Well, there's a, there's a ruthless, practical side to doing these things if you want to do them. Yeah. And you have to have another voice in your head. Right. That's not... The, personal exactly that just fashion. stands at the back of the cave and goes yeah Here's and that actually this. takes a long time to develop i think so i think it's something i definitely didn't have in my in my 20s no, no. um let's talk about your first book i have well in the order in which you sent them to me <laughs> i have the good soldier as yeah. first does that work for you it does actually I, I, that remains for me especially just as a novelist it remains for me um, one of the most important novels, you know. I mean, it's always been top five for me. I was so delighted to see it on the list. It was very close. I had my producer interview me for season, the final episode so what of were season your books? one. Um, oh, uh, they were uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, a little tiny unknown cookbook that I really, yeah, that I cooked from a ton as a little girl. Uh, Portrait of a Lady, Last Night by James Salter. Oh my goodness! And Revolutionary Road. So those were mine, but Ford Maddox Ford and the Good Soldier were that the Good Soldier was I would say number six. It was yeah. so close to being on the well, list. It's funny you mentioned Salter. I was actually I was I guess pitching is the only operative word at a meeting yesterday. Uh, his first novel, The Hunters. Oh, really? Which is just I mean I still it's remember wonderful. being on a subway uh -huh. in the nineties reading this book for the first time, oh, and I, really? I grew up with Jim. Did you? Yeah, I knew him very well, and my. He's, he was a friend of my dad's and a client. And he was wonderful. It was amazing. And he gave me the rights himself in person. He? Yeah. Was he, he was a charming, he was a glorious charming. man. But you know, I was, I almost put light years on Did you? Yeah, yeah. Which is one of so the best beautiful. books about marriage. Ever. Devastating. Book. Ever. Devastating. It doesn't make you necessarily want to No, go but the best books the, don't. Yes. The best yeah. ones don't. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, Incredible writer. So, extraordinary right. writer but no Good Soldier I, I was just uh, so Good Soldiers by Ford Maddox Ford it was published in 1915 it is uh, just to sort of fill people who might not know the book it is ostensibly a story about two couples who meet in um, where do they meet Baden Baden no one yeah it's that sort of, it's a sort of watering it's a hole watering hole right? and I, in a way the name means nothing because exactly. it could be any. It could be place. anywhere. Yeah. Um, and they're an English couple who are um, John Dowell and Florence, who Florence is the ailing one with a fading heart. And then Captain Edward Ashburnham and Leonora. And uh, I'm sorry, I have that the wrong way around. There. No, I, no, that's right. Oh, that is yes. right. Yeah, and Ashburnham right. is the quote 
uh, is, quotes is around the quote around the good quote, soldier the good of soldier. the title. Exactly. Although the book was originally named the saddest story. The saddest story, but the editor told him to change it. And he he always regretted it, though. I mean, I, it's a bit like you know what was it, Tremelchio from West Egg for the uh. Great Gatsby. I mean, let's just <laughs> leave, leave the title to the professionals. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he, I think I think they definitely got it right. Yeah, um, I think so. But I mean, in a way, the thing about that book, and I think one of the reasons why it's such a touchstone for so many people. Uh, novelist, but also people in the arts generally, is that it lives entirely, despite what it, it claims that it's doing, mm. it lives entirely in the realm of the ambiguous, mm. where nothing is exactly what you say. And so mm. all of the suppressed motivations of the narrator, John Dow, mm. and all of the things about the society of these four people, for everything that he states, he's implicitly or explicitly stating the opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, he talks about Ashburnham's blue eyes and how handsome he is. So there was, you know, they were so blue and so handsome and they could, and the, and the times they were perfectly, perfectly stupid. <laughs> and I mean, and he keeps talking about how good he is. And there are words like nice, mm. which is a, a definite killer in the book. Totally, because, yeah. But every single aspect of that, including the four of them, Mm. And how they, over nine or ten years, you know, see each other never in their own home places mm. where, you know, the Dowells are American, but not really like Americans. First of all, they're from Philadelphia, where mm -hmm. he tells you there are more English, old English families than in half, half, <laughs> half of, of England. Yeah. So they're not really Americans. And then these are the, the, the best kind of English people, mm -hmm. the perfectly English sort of. But in fact, they're not. You know, neither, neither the Ashburns really are. Right. And so everything, the whole way of telling it, mm. he's constantly sort of twisting around this. And mm. you begin to understand that that's as much of the story. Mm. I mean, you can give the story away. He gives it away. Yes, you yeah. can give the story, but it, it's, you're totally right. It's not about... Um, it's not about the plot, and the plot's pretty sensational. I mean, the plot is not nothing. But the... the um, the telling and the retelling of it in a way that you, as if when you read it for the first time, I sort of wish I could read The Good Soldier for the first time again. Because I feel that way about a lot of books. My experience of it was so, um, I just remember thinking this is one of the most modern things I've ever read. I can't mm -hmm. believe this was written in 1915. This man yeah. is insisting that we revisit this event that we've already visited. And what is he bringing to it? And suddenly realizing, oh, he's giving me another detail that contradicts everything we already had about this incident that yes. we've that we've had and this detail is making me see it not not in direct contradiction but is it's adding something and it's taking something away as you say with the perfectly perfectly stupid eyes there's some, there's always something um being layered in and something being gently removed that means you're it's not just an unreliable narrator it's this absolutely shifting sense of consciousness that's being mm -hmm. created on the page that's you know henry james was doing it completely differently with these right. long languid elaborate sentences that take you into sort of a beehive of the mind and i feel like ford maddox ford is doing it with us and our endlessly shifting mm -hmm. impressions of a room a person how our impressions of a human being change as we get right. to know them more which is why it feels so contemporary because right. in an age where I mean, look, you can even go back to George W. Bush's presidency where, you know, goodies and baddies and everything. Right. Is I mean, that already feels archaic. Right. Right. I mean, even at the time, mm -hmm. we weren't very happy with it, mm -hmm. some of us. But yeah. <laughs> I, it feels now, it just feels utterly antiquated yes. to see the world in this way. Yeah. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from the point of view of art, I mean, the gray areas where most of it lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, and even if... I mean, the, the, notion, the notion of good of good being a sort of moral, a kind of conventional moral value that we're going to hold on to, yeah. And yet at the same time, you know, who owns that value? Right. And what is it? Mm -hmm. And the story itself resides in the fact that, you know, there is no constant mm -hmm. that will tell you who is good and who's not. At the same time, you, you, do, you can see... Almost every time someone's referred to as good, they're, they're not. They're not. It's a red flag immediately. Yeah. When? How old were you when you read it? I must have read it when I was twenty-two. In Japan? Actually, I probably twenty-four because mm -hmm. when I was twenty-one, I spent about five months in Japan. I was twenty. Um, yeah, I guess it was twenty twenty-one. Mm -hmm. And um, then I came back. 
went to my senior year. I started Bicycle Days as mm -hmm. a thesis. Uh, it was only 100 pages by the end of that. And then I moved to London uh, while I was finishing that. I never got to Paris that time, where I thought I was going. <laughs> uh -huh. And then after the book came out, I went there. And I mentioned all that just because I had been in Japanese studies majors. I mentioned not an English major. Mm -hmm. So though I had read a lot, there was a lot I hadn't read. Mm -hmm. And for basically two years while I was in Paris, working on some very bad fiction, <laughs> uh, which we'll never see the light of day, and slowly, gracefully cracking up, maybe not so gracefully, um, I read. I just read. I read all the great French right. novelists. I read the great Russian writers. Uh -huh. um, I read Cervantes. I read, oh, wow. I, I read the Bible, mm -hmm. which I was not very familiar with, mm -hmm. just as literature, mm -hmm. really. And... So I, I read Ford, Maddox Ford, then too, I read mm. The Modernist. You know, I mean, some of the stuff I had read before, but there were huge gaps. Mm -hmm. And that's probably still remains the most potent reading period mm -hmm. of my life and definitely set me forth in how I read afterwards. Right. Yeah. Did you read your next book, The Short Stories of Anton Chekhov? I did read Chekhov then. You read that then? Yes, I did. And, and of you're course, a cheat so, because yeah. you have got The Short Stories of Anton Chekhov. Period. Period. No, no particular Right, volume. exactly. And I stared at that and, yeah. you know, I've read them too, but I say read them. I've read the ones we've all read. He wrote Lady with, Lady with a Lapdog. I mean, is you know, there are, um, I mean, there's some, there are a lot of classic Chekhov stories. Uh, Lady with a Lapdog is the most famous. Yes. And... Uh, that's the one I've read the most, mm -hmm. probably a dozen times. It's amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And, you know, Gusev is another one. There are little ones like a student. I mean, just two pages long. And then there are some longer ones. The step, you know, is, is long. Ward, um, what's it, Ward 69. So, but, you know, I, the best thing you can do is just pick your best version of the best assorted they all, after his early period, which the stories were shorter and mm -hmm. more humorous, and I think he felt he wasn't very happy He wasn't as proud of them, yeah. Um, I think this, you know, the, the aspects of, of him, of his writing and of his own humanity that we came to recognize, you know, became fully mature. Mm -hmm. And Lady with a Lapdog is a sort of classic example where he takes a sort of conventional story of, you know, an older, uh, sort of middle-aged married man and a woman who's you know married nobody particularly happily mm -hmm. in a seaside resort town and they begin an affair and but what the story is really about is it's it's about a, a womanizer who actually falls in love mm. so it's about a it's about a fundamental change mm. but it's not done in the way that many stories do it which is in a sort of epiphany like mm moment where there's a direct and utter, you know, event that that's the change itself. Sure. The change in him is a state of feeling, mm. which then rather than actually bringing forth the sort of happy ending that many people would imagine actually throws him into a state of deep and almost haunted uncertainty. Mm. Which seems is about, about the standard state for Chekhovian yeah. characters, I feel like. <laughs> no, there's it that is. beautiful moment in it where... Uh, after they've had sex, he sits down and instead of talking to her or commenting on cuts it or reaching it, he cuts and has a slice That's of watermelon. Right. It's a and it's moment. such a beautiful moment. Yeah. And it, it, doesn't, again, say, doesn't say a word. No, it's just such a and again, it's such right. a modern moment in in you know in in what's otherwise a fairly um, predictable era. You think? But it's I, so like life. I mean, so yeah. many <laughs> so many of the things that on paper make better drama mm -hmm. in which are sort of clearly defined moments in which something happens which then changes the state of feeling mm. in someone and then changes the state of life it's not exactly lifelike mm. i mean so much of life is actually big things laced with little mundane almost trivial Tiny moments of course moments of observation or mm. perception mm. or incident is that why he was formative for you, do you think, as a writer? Was he for that? Was there something about... I think, you know, look, his compassion is, you know, it's a word that's thrown around too often. But the compassion he has for all of his characters. Mm. And, I mean, he did have a very fundamental idea that it, it, the artist's job is not to 
put forth any kind of prescription, prescription, right. but to Manifesto, put forth a yeah. presentation. Right. How how you present mm-hmm. your characters and what you have to say, and and as such, he didn't judge. Mm. He had a way of making the ordinary strange, mm. so that we were seeing it for the first time. I know I can't remember which story it's from, but remember once that he was describing a, a bird in a tree, and it, it's 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 the person who looks at it. So it's not it's not the author describing it this way. He mentions the, the the peasant who is walking underneath and then looking up, and he, it looks like a glove <laughs> lying on a. You know, he describes it as a glove on a right. branch. Right. Completely bizarre. Uh-huh. And yet it absolutely you see it the way that that person must that have seen it. That peasant must have seen it. Glancing up. Yeah. And so it immediately throws you out of the ordinary yeah. into this into this moment. And I mean his his belief in the in the ability of the trivial and the mundane to sort of, in a weird way, make life more present, mm-hmm. was captured that Raymond Carver, at the very, I think the last story he, he wrote was called Errand. Mm-hmm. And he was obsessed with Chekhov too, despite how different his stories are. And that story was a story of Chekhov's death. Mm-hmm. And it's told from the waiter, the boy who comes in to deliver the champagne that's been asked, that, che- that Chekhov has asked for. Yes. And there's, a, there's a, a moth or a bee that's in the room. And there are just all these little tiny details. nothing details. Yeah. So you're seeing it from the waiter's eye. And, yeah. and in that way, it's not as good as a story as a Chekhov story, but it's totally Chekhov. And I'm homage to it. Yeah. Because yeah. those, those were his last words where I haven't had champagne yes, in a long time. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 there, there was incredible consistency to making art that intended not to be artful and yet in every way allowed for the sort of movement of life mm-hmm. to be, you know, to, to be the prize at the end. That's, mm-hmm. that's the goal. That's mm-hmm. where most of these things go. Right. They just keep going. They're perceptions that keep opening out in apparently simple descriptions. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't waste a lot of time with emotional descriptions. No. Very little, very yeah. spare. Yeah. And yet you're constantly, without even knowing it, put in the minds and, and shoes of of ordinary people of all sorts. Yeah. Who who are not all good and not all bad. I right. mean and, and through that he works through a number of things that he absolutely abhorred in life like violence and other things but so in every case there's sort of wonder and horror mm. but they're always muted i think there's there's nothing sensational about what Never. he's doing and Never. and i found this wonderful quote that mm. nabokov said of him he described his prose as a tint between the color of an old fence and that of a low cloud and I think from Nabokov, who, <laughs> whose pro style was as far from that as it's possible to be, that was probably... recently. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's probably sort of faint praise, but I, I thought that that's, as usual, he's, he's actually nailed it. That is, that is exactly where he is, mm-hmm. his color. That is where he was aspiring to, was to, do, was to render the old fence yeah. and the low cloud, because they're important and as important as the heartbreak that's going on as important as the desertion or the abandonment or the whatever else they're all there they're all equal and it's part of that what you were saying that much maligned word compassion is his refusal i think to judge about what's important in a scene it's Mm -hmm. all it all belongs that's everything's given equal weight yeah and it's almost to such a degree and you have to remember when he was writing it's incredible and but to such a degree that actually it feels, again, it feels strange and, and, and almost radical. Mm. And, and because it's a shift for us to also say all of these things are equal and there's no particular end. Mm. The stories tend to just end. Yeah. You know, they go on. I mean, in, in, Gusev, in the story Gusev, at the end he's, he, he dies, he's wrapped, in, wrapped up in this cloth bag in, in which Chekhov describes him. It's like it's like a carrot or a shrub, you know, narrow at the top and and wider at, or a radish. Yes, a radish, it. exactly. Yeah. And then the body he follows the body completely unexpectedly down into the water mm. as it's tossed over, past a, a pilot fish, and then as he goes down and then he rises up again into a, and, and he describes the sky in this very simple but 
completely unexpected way with mm-hmm. no sort of missing a chunk of cloud or something. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's where he leaves you. Right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Do you do that with your novels? Do you leave? Do you tie them up? Do you, well, you know walk hard, out of the room you know and leave them? You know how hard it is. <laughs> I mean, I I would say I've rewritten the ending. I know Reservation Road. I rewrote the ending probably thirty times. Did you? And then, in some cases, I might I'll end up writing past where I eventually end. Interesting, right? Because you realize you've gone too far. Uh huh. That's interesting. That happens. I just did that again. Did you actually? Yeah. So I, I I just think you're looking for a place, you know, to end it in in a in some way that expresses the basic feeling of why you wrote it. Sure. Which may be quite some time ago and not be apparent to anybody sure. else. Yeah. And you know, it is. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a hard thing to do, and you just keep looking at it all the way. But I tend, I definitely tend, I, I, I'm more in favor of open-ended. Mm-hmm. I mean, the sensibility that Chekhov brings, it seems to me, is more lifelike mm-hmm. than anything, sure. anything else. And of course, there are some writers. I mean, Alice Munro is sort of mm-hmm. famously compared, although she's, you know, she began taking some of that strangeness and. Uh, extrapolating it into almost a fantastical quality mm-hmm. in some of her late stories, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those stories seem to aspire to be read almost like novels, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that I don't think Chekhov really did. Do you aspire to a short story? I don't really. Mm-hmm. It's odd. I probably, if I was better at them, I, I'm sure I would. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like. <laughs> I mean, we tend to we tend to have our aspirations shaped by uh, well, our, our, abilities. Fa- our failures. Yes, our failures. Um, yeah, sure. But no, you know, I never went to an MFA program. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, I mean, the formative writing class I took at, at college was a poetry writing uh, workshop with Seamus Heaney. That'll do. Uh, that'll wow. Do. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was no poet, but it was fantastic. Oh my and, God! Just to sit in the room. How right. amazing! Oh, he was. I loved Seamus. I bet. He was wonderful. What a voice! Wonderful. So. I mean, he would come in, you know, pink-cheeked from the pub in the afternoon on a wintry day. Perfect. But yeah, no, I, I, I deeply appreciate short stories. Mm. And I was just reading Lincoln and the Bardo, which made me go back to some mm. of Saunders' short stories. They're which extraordinary. They're extraordinary. They're just extraordinary. Yeah. And I, you have to think, especially since Lincoln and the Bardo is not really a novel, it's a, it's a fascinating book. But I agree. You, you I have, have it as an audio book. Yeah. Where it's, it's sort of thriving. Well, it's but more it's like a play. Thing. People yeah. say film script, but it's not. It's really more it's like a, play. a play. It's well, a you know, radio play. Thornton Wilder. I'm telling you, you yeah. should listen to the audio book. It's I bet it is a radio play. It's yeah. really extraordinary. And it's, it's been cast idea. with real actors Actually, all I, playing. I would love to do that. Audible has yeah. it. It's wonderful. But, you know, I go back to the stories and it's incredibly hard to do it. And I, you know, I grew up reading a lot of it, but it's not, for some reason, it's just not that kind of enforced compression, mm. although I don't think I write particularly long, mm. you know, is um, I, I'm more I'm more attracted to the scale of poetry in mm. that sense right. than I am to the short story. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, I think not having ever written a story that I, I really think is right. at a level that, that you know, yeah. I would admire, yeah. that probably has something to do with it, yeah. you know, chicken and egg. <laughs> Yeah, I did a short story course here when I first came here. Who was the? It was at UCLA, and it was a. I, I just was looking around. I think I missed. I think I was desperately homesick. If I'm honest, I was just mm. homesick for England. And then UCLA campus felt not like Oxford, and yet somehow that there would be something for me there that would feel like home. And so mm-hmm. I just signed up for any course I could. So I did a bunch of short story courses there. To my shame, I forget who I was taught by. Yeah. No one remarkable except that they enforced, they sent me off to read a whole bunch of short stories. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. That's the great value. Because I mean, my college yeah. degree had not encouraged that. So 
I only found Chekhov, Chekhov, Chekhov short stories when I was 24, I think, 25. There's something to be said for that always. I mean, coming to a book, I still have books on my shelves that I, it's like they've just been waiting there. Yeah. I mean, you know, and you, yeah. and you pass by them again and again. At some point, if you're lucky, you pull it down just when you need to right. read it. It's so true. But there's also, we talk a lot about this on the podcast, the act of rereading and what that Mm -hmm. is and finding things, you know, rediscovering not just the novel, but who you are now in the context of this novel and who you were when you read it for the first time and what an extraordinary experience that is. There isn't really anything else that I can think of that asks you to try on the same suit in the same way. No, watching a film again is not the same. It's not the you same. Know, you can watch no, the no, and you're not your your emotional and inner world isn't engaging mm-hmm. with it for the same length of time that a novel asks you to. Well, you have to be inside it. Also, yeah. that's what reading is. I mean, the, the book is not finished when you finish it. No. The book is is completed by the reader. Right. And so, until that happens in its own way, it's not quite done. Talk to me about your third book. You have, again, you cheated hugely <laughs> by picking a trilogy, the Regeneration yeah. Trilogy by Pat Barker, which was published in, well, Regeneration was 1991, The Eye and the Door was 1993, and The Ghost Road was 1995. I had read Regeneration when it came out and was astonished by it, mm-hmm. really astonished. I remember, I remember that's when I read it, I remember but, I remember that experience. Yeah, and then I don't remember yeah. the eye in the door, and I do remember the ghost road. So yeah, fill well, me in. Why? You're, you're right. The eye in the door actually is is a slightly less accomplished book. It's the trilogy. I, I think the trilogy matters because first, let me say, I think she's a remarkable writer. She's not one of my favorite writers in the world. But no, but the, I asked performative, not favorite. Yes, so I'm really glad right. you made the distinction. And I, you know, I'm I'm just finishing the second of my novels that is historically based. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite, in this case, very much doing, taking real lives and then inventing certain people and mixing real people sure, and yeah. other people. I'm certainly not the first person to do it, but the impact of what she did and how she set about telling those stories. So, again, yeah. just for the listener right. who doesn't know it, the, the stories are set at Craig Lockhart, or the, the, the novels are set at Craig real Lockhart, yeah. which is a real hospital in, in Scotland, and uh, the end of the First World, or during the First World War, and these officers are being treated for shell shock, uh, and the officers among them are Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, who were great, went on to be short-lived but extraordinary Robert Graves um, plays a small role you know, poets and role. Robert Graves yeah. plays a short role and then the um, psychiatrist who's attending them was a real man also who was W.H.R. Rivers and uh, and then there are other fictionalized characters who are in that mix as well and so she takes this hospital and these shell-shocked men and their ambitions and ambivalence and their poetic leanings and then Rivers doing his psycho you know pioneering psychoanalytical work um, and he's the central figure, really, in the right exactly. through the three books. Right. Um, and she creates some characters. Yeah. Billy Pryor is probably the most central through the right. first three he's books. He's a, he's a working class. Right, thing. addition to it, But, yeah. of course, he, he's an officer, too, because only officers are treated at Craig Lockhart. Right, right. But he, he offers this, and, he, you know, his sexuality is not fixed, mm-hmm. and his whole sense of social strata mm. is not fixed, and he has a very different view. I mean, the thing that one of the things that struck me and, and still strikes me is the way that she, the things she emphasizes, there's a repetition. Like if you read the three books, you keep coming back mm-hmm. to the same places again and again. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not like you start here and end and right. end. Uh, you know, four years later. Sure. I mean, yes, the Ghost Road ends just before the end of the war, mm-hmm. and it's it's in it's that moment when Wilfred Owen's company is. Cross and mm. trying to cross the canal, and after all that, he's killed. Yeah. And but really, if you track the three books as a reader, you're going there and coming back, and you're you're seeing these same places mm. and these same experiences and these same words mm. over and over and over again, and it begins to, you know, inflict almost on you this war the very, of attrition, yes, the, yeah. the same sense of you know, helpless awareness that you are in this, you know, this circle that you can't get out of. Mm-hmm. And it's done in a way that she has a, a little like Hillary Mantel. I mean, she has quite defined notions of what 
she's able to do and what she's not allowed to mm -hmm. do as, as a writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mantel is the most stringent mm -hmm. in terms of what she, how she goes about that. Mm. Uh, I'm less stringent, okay. I would say, than, than Barker. What rules do you apply? My, that she doesn't or that she does? I mean, it's, I'm more willing to make up certain things in the middle. Right. Um, I, I, I want to follow the trough that I've set. Sure. In this case, it's been two lives mostly, but right. things change. I will. I'm, I don't mind inventing characters who didn't exist. I mean, she does that too. But I, I'm, I'm happy for the uh, for a reader to read the book and not be able to track the scenes. Sure. You know, I mean, I for me, I love doing research as a novelist, but and it's very much the Hippocratic form. First. First, do no harm, right? So right, sure. there's a contract you have with the reader, which sure. is to say, I'm not going to delude you sure. about what what really happened. Mm -hmm. We're not if if I present this as something that's real history, I'm not going to go completely away from that. Right. But within that, the details of the characters you make, you are understanding that these are fictional these characters are by yeah. definition. Sure. My version of this person is already a fiction. Right. And after that, you're trying to get at some other truth mm -hmm. that's not just the biography. So, um, but in her case, I, th I think she, I mean, I, I think she was one of the bravest writers to tackle this subject and to find uh, in Rivers a character who himself is haunted by his experiences in the Solomon Islands before, right. but also by the fact that he's not on the front. Mm -hmm. But then you add to that the reality that he actually is not a pacifist. He mm -hmm. believes the war should be fought to the sure. end. You know, and, and yet he's caring for these people who come in mm. and he's overseeing all of these electric shock treatments. Mm. And I, there's a kind of totality to the vision. And that's where the three books come in, right. which is and that's part of the repetition. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I think we all have this instinct in art to clean up. <laughs> right. Both aesthetically and, and otherwise. But the patterning of things, sometimes relentless as it may be, is part of what happens. Sure. And part of how we read things afterwards and why things were important. Right. And I, this, these books do that. I think they have a they have a they have a real presence that's not aesthetic so much as it really is. It's it's another one of those books that get down in you at the level of being. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there are writers who are more style, stylish. Sure. No, but she, she's not one. I mean, that's also not neglect the fact that Pat Parker is a, is a woman from the North right, who, right. who had previously written, you know, pretty stark. Feminist is maybe too strong, but, mm. but a, a bold, unapologetic style mm -hmm. of her own about Northern women who then embarked on this extraordinary She wanted trilogy. to break the mold for so she felt she, she was being did. pigeonholed. She did. She felt she was being completely yeah. pigeonholed by it. She also wrote somewhere that um, the male point of view made her feel that she was wearing asbestos gloves and allowed mm -hmm. her to handle things that were otherwise too difficult to These handle, gloves. which I thought was a really interesting And analogy. actually, I mean, you can see her doing that all over the place. Totally. And I, I think it's, I think, um, it's funny, I really want to read... Um, I think it's called Life Class. Yes. Uh, that's the one I, I haven't read. It. I haven't read it either. And I, I, it's one I have bookmarked. But anyway, I think she's a really interesting writer. And I was, I'm always compelled by women like Hilary Mantle who choose this austere male perspective from which to write. It feels. Yeah. I mean, Wolf Hall's worth a whole conversation. It's a whole other yeah. podcast in itself. Yeah. Both those books. I can't wait for the. And thing. actually, her memoir, Giving Up the Ghost. I mean, yeah, I know. I've had that recommended too. I there's so many. She's a strange. She's a curious yeah, lady. She really is. Um, I want to make sure we've got time for yeah. everything. So the next book, oh, help me with this one. So in, in order that you gave them to me, it sees the day. Saul right. Bellow, 1956. The novella, really. Is Full yeah. disclaimer. I have tried. You hate it. I know. I don't hate it. I've tried, I'm going to say five or six mm -hmm. times to climb into this and Humboldt's Gift right. and Herzog. You, Am I just too white, no, too English, too not Jewish? What I, is the problem? I would say too not Jewish. What is? I was, I'm only half Jewish. But I would say that 70% of the women I, I like the most uh -huh. cannot stand Bella. It's not, not yeah. standing. It's just I can't, but they just, they have, they, I can't get inside it. They I have no connection with right. him whatsoever. Tell me why it's formative well, for you. Well, I started, I mean, I'll get to C's Day in a moment. Which Sorry, I actually didn't, I didn't read it first. I started out... Again, I think this is during the Paris days, but I mean, I started with Augie March, mm -hmm. and then I read uh, Humboldt's Gift, and then I read Herzog, which I ended up reading a couple of times. I don't know. I mean, 
maybe those were the main ones. And then I read Seize the Day. And now the thing about Bello, again, and I don't, I don't want to go back and read most of them again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really don't. I sort of feel like in a way that's over. Mm -hmm. Seize the Day to me is sort of the perfect, it's the, it's the perfect dose of Bello. And I think he, <laughs> it's the book that sort of is in between his couple of early novels, The Victim, Dangling Man, where he was still writing more in a kind of European style. They mm -hmm. were tighter, sparer. Mm -hmm. And then Augie March was the big, you know, I trumpet America. Mm -hmm. And he's going to just go and grab it mm -hmm. and, and use the, the language and the idiom right. and the, the sort of uh, messy, you know, circus of mm -hmm. it to the, to the utmost. To me, you know, the brain, he's a kind of brain fever mm -hmm. as a writer. And I always, always was very wary of reading him while I was writing something. Oh, interesting. You know, in a particular uh -huh. vein, because I, I mean, I could never write like that. I never would. But no, but it's get into too your consuming. head. Absolutely. Because yeah. the voice is so absolutely, um, it's, it's so alive. Sure. And Seize the Day to Me, the thing that got me, it's about a guy named Tommy Willem, who is, you know, his name is not Tommy Willem. His name is something, it's a sort of Jewish, un, unassuming name, right. that it's sort of schlubby, but he wants to be Tommy Wilhelm. And so he, re, you know, he renames himself Tommy Wilhelm. He's divorced, kids, uh, alimony payments, he's poor, he, he's, you know, his work is falling apart. He needs $15,000, and it's basically a day, mm -hmm. more or less. He's got a, a psychiatrist, a, you know, a therapist, mm -hmm. And who he sees, who becomes a, a character in this. And he's living in a kind of boarding hotel mm -hmm. up on the Upper West Side. And, it, and he's got a relationship with his father that is very problematic. All his relationships are problematic. Mm -hmm. But you can see him as a sort of Jay Gatsby kind of figure. Jay Gats, who becomes Jay Gatsby, right, sure. right? He wants to be this man. But the whole kind of soup bowl of American, of the, the American ideals, the mm -hmm. story of what that American sure. life is. It's kind of what he feels he's right. still engaged in, although he knows he's losing. So it's a big kind of con in a way, but it's done with incredibly he, con on himself, mm -hmm. trying to perpetuate himself forward into this sort of little mythic moment of mm -hmm. ambition. But at the same time, he cares. Like mm -hmm. he is, he is a lonely man. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to ruin it for anybody. At the same time, it's impossible to talk about it and possible to talk about why it's a formative book for me without talking about where it ends up. Right. He falls apart. At the he end, he's walking right? along Broadway. He's fallen completely apart, but he doesn't, he hasn't gotten quite there yet. Mm. I mean, he's, he's fallen apart, but right. there's still a little, there's bit, a little more bit more to go. To go. <laughs> and there's a crowd and he steps, he, he, he feels disoriented and he needs to get out of the sun. He steps into this temple. Or it's a church. I can't remember the church or temple, and he finds himself in the midst of someone else's funeral, someone he doesn't even know, mm -hmm. and in this crowd, grieving for this stranger, he loses it. Mm -hmm. Like it finally, he feels himself surrounded by, and attending to mm -hmm. this other person, and it all happens in a sort of rolling moment, mm -hmm. you know where his own circus sort of rolls over him sure. and he feels himself both stripped completely naked and at the same time, you know, there and, right. and full for the, for the, for just a moment. All right. Yeah. All right. I know. I'm I'll, not, but I I'll still, give it a go. I, I'm not I'll sure try. you should. I'm not sure you should. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, 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 I really get it. I, yeah. I hear it all the time and I'm, you know, and I don't know questions. How, how is Bello aging? Right. In a way, the work. Right. I mean, we know Martin Amos loves him. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't gone back. When did you last read it? I read that book probably 15 years ago. Okay. Yeah. I have a thing for perfect short novels. Mm. Disgrace, I don't know if it counts mm. as a short novel. I, I Disgrace by J.M. Kurtz, in, published in 1999. I, I was so glad to see this on the list. It mm. was actually, it came up in the last podcast as someone's honorable mention, if you mm -hmm. like. I thought this was an astonishing book when this came out. I, it is. I thought it, it was wonderful. I was really glad to hear what you had to say and why this was one. When did you read it? When it, when it came out? I read out it when it came it? out, mm -hmm. and then I read it again a few years later, and then I was giving, I, I was writing a talk 
about literature and mm -hmm. which is a, you know an occasion really to sort of where you reach for your formatives sure. and it not only did it make it in but I actually ended the talk by reading that last page oh, really? of that book mm -hmm. um, why formative for you what what I, I think it was something about look he's been an extraordinary writer for a long time and I read Waiting for the Barbarians a couple mm -hmm. of times and I read The Life and Times of Michael Kay and it's about Dostoevsky but I felt that he, this book was his mature, in fact, I sort of feel like it was the high point of the mature before it began, before the weight of the Nobel maybe, and, mm -hmm. and, and his own interest in, ac in theory and in academia began, you know, he was, he's been playing with form mm -hmm. ever since in his own autobiography, which he'd written in the third person. Oh, wow. And in his writing about like the lives of animals, mm -hmm. he's very strong views about animal rights. Mm -hmm. And he's worked a lot of his theories into, you know, Elizabeth Costello, into the characters. But somehow Disgrace, it was a book that seemed to get it exactly right. So it's about, I mean, David Lurie is a 52-year-old professor of communications at the University of Cape Town. But it, they have basically in the new era of university education, they've done away with all the modern, with all modern language study. So he's left down to just one course on the romance on you know romance writers and that's it in terms of what he considers to be culture mm -hmm. so he's kind of going through the motions he's writing an opera about byron and he sees himself a little bit as byron as too he's good looking he's very interested in sex particularly with sort of exotic women so mm -hmm. there's a woman of color who is a prostitute mm -hmm. who he sees until she suddenly cuts off their visits he sees her regularly and she or the idea of her means more to him than at first than he thinks. Mm. And then there's a, a young, pretty student. young student, mm. right, Melanie, who he sleeps with a few times. And in each case, he does describe, you know, her as being more or less inert. And I, I have yes, the passage here. It's wonderful. Yeah. The young woman remains passive, and then the quote begins, as though she had decided to go slack, die within herself for the duration, like a rabbit when the jaws of the fox close on its neck so that everything done to her might be done, as it were, far away. Mm -hmm. Which I felt was just... I was intrigued by it. Re -re I, I, when I was, saw it on your list and mm -hmm. was rereading around the book and reminding myself of when I read it and thinking about, you know, so just to praise you quickly, mm -hmm. this, this, this act gets him kicked out of the university and then he goes to stay with his daughter. And then yes, he goes, so he goes from, I think, western to eastern Cape Town, which is right. quite, quite the move, you right. know, and he ends up down in the old country, right, where... Uh, on a where she's living on a uh, sort of subsistence farming on this little bit of land, she is everything he's not. Right. She is unattractive, you know, sort of heavy set. Doesn't care about her mm. appearance. She's a lesbian, mm. and she's living on this farm. And there's this black man, Petrus, who works the land, but also is building his own little bit by bit landed little sort of existence, yeah, yeah. nearby. And so he enters into this world to the idea that he will write his opera and live this way and he likes when he helps out petrus sometimes mm. with work something that he sort of pleases him mm. to think that this reversal but he's aware of it right mm. he's always sort of aware and then he helps out um because his his daughter also works uh, at a, has a kennel where she and this woman bev shaw work uh with these dogs and that's, you know, that leads into the sort of second half of the novel where he's there and then three men or boys and, and men come and they rape her. His daughter. Yes, they rape his daughter and they light him on fire. Yeah. And they both survive. And then you're in a place where rather than, I mean, one of the boys is living with Petrus, the little boy. And, but rather than report him, Lucy continues, she, she feels... It's, she decides to stay without reporting, even though it seems likely there'll be another attack. And they argue about this, and the father and the daughter are getting further apart. And it is not so much the, the events as it is the, it's the passage through these states mm -hmm. of unlearning and knowledge, in a way, and, and towards some kind of human feeling. Mm -hmm. And in, in his case... It, it brings us toward the end where he begins working. He's now disfigured. 
Mm. He survived this burning. He's no longer handsome or Byronic. He knows he's never going to finish his opera. He begins working at the animal shelter and the job that they do there. He, he has an, he almost forces himself to have a sexual relationship with Bev Shaw, who he considers, he describes as being yeah. like almost painfully un, mm. unattractive, someone he's not attracted to. Mm. And they be, their job is to put down the sick and the homeless animals. And there's one crippled dog that he becomes attached to, very attached. And the very end of this book, and I, it, we don't have it here, but if you have any time on this, <laughs> when you get home, I hope you would read it. Mm. This last page, mm. when, he, when he finally brings himself to put down this dog. Mm. And to me, that was the... Um, I'm, I'm getting emotional just thinking about mm. it, actually. It's, I mean, to me, it was... The book has all of the theoretical, political, and philosophical issues that are that Kotsia has been dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. his whole life. And he, I mean, he has a very chiseled, cool intellect. Mm. And everybody knows this about him. And even personally, in his own life, he's that way. Mm-hmm. But there's something about this book that allowed him, you know, the structure and the, the, the conjoining of these issues was simple. So it allowed him to inhabit, inhabited and touched on all those things, but it also, it was simple enough that it allowed the human beings to grow right. as they would. Mm. The father and daughter, it's a family story, really. But all of the other issues and the complexities, and it has a profound depth to it. I mean, I, and I think the, the recognition of, between him and this, these animals and this dog yeah. at the end, I think that's that to me was what I was so moved by in it and your retelling of it too that it's a book to me it's a book about shame and mm-hmm. then and the, the the corrective to shame being this discovery of our common humanity and by that I extend it to the animals that he has to work that he chooses to work with the maimed the disfigured the yes. crippled dog that he then must you know that 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 becomes the only palliative there is for mm-hmm. um what he and his daughter have endured and also what they've inflicted on others. I mean, that little passage that I read out about, you know, the rabbit going slack in the jaws of the mm-hmm. fox, I, I was really struck by it rereading it in this current day and age, in this I wanted to get to that in a second, yes. Era. I'm I am really like, golly, mm-hmm. I wonder what it is to I, I would like makes me want to reread the book now mm-hmm. and see what uh, I make of it, whether I I think it really stands up, I was thinking about it today, because obviously Everything we read right now is in this revision. Like, does yeah. it does it stand up to the standards that we are asking it to stand up to? Yes, now, I, I don't need it to I don't, do that. I don't need I have, it to do I that don't either. At all. But I, he was, um, and he's a difficult man. I mean, it could see it, and some of his views are difficult. He's right. never trying to please anybody. Sure. But actually, I think he gets it. I think he gets right at it without letting it take over. Right. And I, I, that's the one thing you want to say to everybody else right now, too. There's still... there. The other stories go on. Yes. And, and, the, and in the end, yeah. you know, they're never going to go away. Mm-hmm. And if you take your eye off it completely and think you're answering it with some prescriptions, prescriptive mm. notion about how to correct things that are indeed wrong, mm. you're missing the basic fundamental, you know, issues that are going to be there one way or the other. Right. And it has to do with how we are with each other. And in the end letting go of so many of our biases and blindnesses and arrogance, mm. you know, and, and levels of arrogance towards others mm. to understand that, in fact, we are all, you know, at some level, we're all that dog. We're that all crippled, crippled dog. dogs, yes. exactly, yeah. And we need someone to have tenderness for us. Right. So I think he gets out. You never forget, you never let him off the hook, and he never fully apologizes. No. And that's why he's kicked out. Right. He apologizes, but he doesn't really apologize because... Right. He doesn't think he, he, he ought to. Yeah. And, you know, I look back at The Good Soldier where, I mean, how does that stand up? You know, Edward Ashburnham is, he may even have raped this one woman. And, you know, if you look at it in slightly different language and he's constantly womanizing and picking this up all these people. And, right, all of it, yeah. and he's the good soldier. But by simply casting doubt on those adjectives, mm. you already are doing something yeah. that actually says more about how we have to figure this out right. than any number of easy prescriptions. Yeah. So 
I mean, I think, look, the power of literature, great fiction, is, you know, is and has always been it, to, to be, to see the world through another's eyes, yeah. other people's eyes, mm -hmm. and to understand that no experience is simple, and no experience is exactly what it seems, mm -hmm. and no adjective you might throw upon that person says it all. Right. And that, you know, the stories are made up in exactly these gray areas. Mm -hmm. And that if we don't accept that in each other, then, you know, what are we going to do about ourselves? Then we're, yeah, what hope is that? Yeah. John, thank you. So fascinating. I Thanks. have a couple of rapid fire questions. Yes. I'm going to add two at All right. What's the book you lie about having read? <laughs> uh, I think it's Ulysses. Ulysses. I mean, it's, That's it's, come up a few times. It's not even Finnegan's Wake. I, I would never say I read Finnegan's Wake, no. but I never finished Ulysses. I'm right there with you. Yeah. No bye. Or I would say I skipped ahead to yes. Oh, okay. There we <laughs> Molly, go. Molly Bloom. Um, yes. And you get to take one book to your desert island. What is it? It can be one of these five, but it can be another one. I mean, I, I'm tempted to say Anna Karenina, but mm. I mean, those books, you know, War and Peace and that, I mean, I... It has everything in it, and mm. it feels more like the life that you will be missing yes. than anything else. <laughs> it's a lovely way of looking at it. Yeah. So I, I would say most likely that. I've okay. read them both twice, yeah. with years. Of, those are the great rereaders. Isn't right? it? Yeah. How funny. We talked about this last yeah. season because I'd read, I'd just finished rereading Anna, Anna Karenina for yeah. a second time, and I, I, I talked about a bit of what it was to stumble on those people for yeah. a second time now yeah. well you definitely don't want to take seize the day or something <laughs> you take seize yeah, the day okay. john thank you so thank much you. it was such a pleasure oh, it was fun. Thank i really you. enjoyed it i mean i you know i i don't even get to do this that often just sort of talk books you know it's such a pleasure it yeah. really is thanks so much for listening to this week's interview if you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know, tell everyone you can. Go to the website bookishwithsoniawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at Bookish Sonia or at SoniaWalger.com. And you could also email me through the info at bookishwithsoniawalga.com page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show.